This is Comic Geek Speak, episode 1568, Ant-Man Movie Review. I'm Adam Murdo. I'm Shane Kelly. And I'm Matt. And welcome to the show. Time for us to talk about the latest uh, entry in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Number 12 for the current run. Mm-hmm. A great thing that came in a small package, the <laughs> Ant-Man movie starring Paul Rudd and Michael Douglas and a whole bunch of other people. He is 46 years old. Is that so? I thought he was close. I mean, not that I'm a spring chicken. I'm 43. But I thought he was closer to me, if not just barely over or under me. I didn't think he was three years ahead of me. Whew. <laughs> he looked pretty damn good for 46. Yeah, he can play young. That's why he's still got a job in Hollywood. Yeah, sure, but, sure Adam, can. Adam, do you remember probably one of his earliest movies that we in? Uh, one of his earliest movies that uh, uh, no, I don't. That Paul Rudd was in. No, it's uh, how are you guessing, or you want me to tell you? Uh, just, just go ahead. Okay. Halloween six. Oh. Halloween six. <laughs> Halloween six. God, I was I thinking Clueless. That. Yeah, yeah, we went and saw that at the Fairground Square Theater, and uh, I think it's the first. Uh, well, Ben was with us, wasn't he? Yes, he was. Yeah. Huh. It's the first movie of that kind I ever saw in the theater. I have to look up pictures to see what he looked like back then. I had no idea who was in Halloween 6. He, he basically looks the exact same. <laughs> That's crazy. All right. Well, shall we uh, pay our respects to our sponsor here before we uh, get, get into the small details? Absolutely. This episode is brought to you by Discount Comic Book Service. That's dcbservice.com. Go there for all your pre-ordering needs. Check out their front page for their bundled specials, which they are plentiful as always. Um, look for graphic novels to be on sale. Each issue is – what's the current discount on most normal issues? 40% I think it is? Uh, or thereabouts. Thereabouts. Yeah. Um, I just uh, placed my order the other day. I ought to know. I still have to do that. I was really good last month and got it on like day two of the month. And today I'm still thinking i got to find time to sit down and do my order. Um, Use them. Check out their specials, their discounts. Discount ser- discount comic book service. That's dcbservice.com. Go there for all your pre-ordering needs. Mm-hmm. And they are a lifeline to uh, comic books and related products for a lot of us here on CGS. Yes, they are. As much as I – whenever I go to a brick and mortar, I still pick up something that I find there. I could not be collecting for as long as I have if I wasn't going there for – some good discounts yeah. over the last 10 years. Well, the nice thing about it is every single thing that is published every month, that's, at least that's listed in the previews catalog, mm-hmm. and several things that aren't, yeah. are right there at your fingertips at a decent uh, discount from uh, the cover price. That's right. Stuff that uh, your local comic shop might not even consider ordering unless you ask them to specifically. You can just uh, just grab your own copy online via DCBS. Yep. And if they can't get it for you, they will let you know as quickly and courteously as possible. Yeah, and they're great at their cor- correspondence through the mm-hmm. emails for... 
different changes to the previous catalog. Right. Something was canceled and needs to be resolicited, yeah. or if a, a cover price of an item has changed. From the company. Yep, they always give you the option to cancel it from yep. your order. Yeah, so the, the customer service is second to none. Yep, that's right. DCBService.com. Mm-hmm. We know them, we love them, we use them. All right. Ant-Man. Ant-Man. Now, I got to take Matt, my Matt with me. Uh, Ben's away, and uh, hopefully I'll take him sometime this week or the next week so I get to see it twice, <laughs> um, which I won't cry about because I loved it. <laughs> yeah, I, I went just last night, actually. And, uh, oh, wow. Yeah, my dad, actually, but I didn't even have to ask him. He said, oh, he basically get out. told me, I'm coming along. Nice. So <laughs> we went to a, like a, a 9.55 p.m. showing and closed up the shop a little bit early last night in Stone Harbor and walked across the street to the theater because it's nice. literally right across the street from the shop. Oh, that's awesome. But unfortunately, we still missed like the first few minutes of the movie. Okay. So, yeah, when we got there, uh, Scott Lang was being picked up by his uh, old Selly Luis in his van. Okay. So I understand. Oh, there was oh, a scene man. with uh, Howard so, Stark and yeah. Peggy Carter. I, I missed that. Oh. Oh, 1989 as the Triskelion is getting built. Oh, yes. it, Truthfully, I missed that. Very, when I came in, um, Hank was arguing because we had a bunch of previews, and it was one for Mission Impossible, and I thought, well, I have just enough time to quick go take one last piss. When I walked in, <laughs> uh, Hank was arguing with him. I was like, I know I had to miss something. Oh. Yeah, it, it, it. Well, spoilers, of course, because we're oh, going to be oh, talking yeah, about yeah, the review of this gonna movie. We're going to spoil this uh, start to finish from antennae <laughs> to abdomen here. Um, it, it opens up with um, a faraway view of a dilapid, an in construction, in process construction of the Triskelion and a little thing underneath says 1989. Because at first I thought, oh, well, maybe they're rebuilding that building for some reason. Not that I could see that, but... Mm, right, after I thought, it was destroyed okay. in uh, the Winter Soldier. Right. And I thought, right. oh, well, they're rebuilding it for something. Um, and then it, it cut away to everybody arguing and, and talking. I'm like, oh, my God, this is awesome. They did a great, great job of making Michael Douglas look much younger in more like the Wall Street days. Uh-huh. Uh, even maybe a little bit younger than that. Um, it, had, it was just a great scene. It was a lot of fun to see them pull in all these characters. Yet again, Agent Carter was there and Howard Stark was there. And then to bring Michael Douglas's um, Hank Pym in. And then the other guy, the fourth guy, I can't remember his name at the moment, he was part of the bad guy contingent oh, through yeah, the rest like of the movie. The guy that uh, Michael Douglas punches in the nose. and then Not that guy. Well, I, no, the he other guy. He slams him in the face. Yeah. With uh, um, the table. He takes his head and slams it down into the uh, table. And then he shows up later as the – so the bald-headed guys, the the, yeah. the big baddie, the guy that yeah. comes in to buy the stuff right. off and of him. And then when Michael Douglas punches him in the nose. Yeah. That, well, no. He that's grabs why him he, by the back of the head and slams his head down on the table. That's in the beginning of the Triskelion. Yeah. Well, yeah. You know, I, I mean the later scene oh. with, in the, set in the present when mm-hmm. – uh, Oh, okay. Uh, Hank Pym punches Darren Cross in the nose. Yeah. And then yeah. The, the other guy, uh, Car- Mitchell Carter or something like that, he, he's standing by saying, here here we go. Yes, so that's, yeah. That's that, that makes more yeah. sense now yeah. that I know he uh, suffered some violence at Hank Pym's hands earlier. Well, he made a comment about Janet in the Triskelion, which I thought was awesome. And, and Hank got pissed. Um, <laughs> Wouldn't you? Oh, my God, yeah. yeah. Um, it, was, it was really a clever little scene. Well, there was also that callback later when they meet when Cross is about to make the announcement, and he says something like, uh, "Like, how have you been? Like, how things are going, or something like that." And Pim responds back, "How's your nose?" Yeah, That's yeah. Another callback. But uh, I did want a quick touch on it. one thing that I have to say that I'm really enjoying is how they're using Peggy and to some extent Howard as kind of like the linchpin of the the uh, Marvel universe. 
before Nick Fury. So, so far, a lot of these flashbacks and things that happened beforehand, they're playing some type of integral part. And I think that's cool because, one, it gives um, Peggy that, that more importance that, that you can see, you know, especially being a woman. That, that She's coming on, Sophie. Um, especially since uh, it just shows how important she is to the Marvel Universe yeah. and getting everything built up to essentially where Iron Man uh, one where the first Iron Man movie is, and then we introduce Nick Fury, and he kind of takes the ball and runs it from there. So um, that's one thing I really liked with that scene is that it, it just more emphasizes of uh, her importance, but also to some extent Howard's importance. Yeah, no, it's it's actually now that you mentioned it, it's kind of reminded me of uh, what John Byrne tried to do with his Marvel: The Lost Generation maxi series a little while ago, trying to tell us, uh, okay, if uh, the Fantastic Four's first appearance is the beginning of the contemporary Marvel Universe, and if that always happens like 10 or so years ago, no matter what year it happens to be, well, then what happened between 1961 and uh, like 11 years ago? Yeah. So he uh, invented this whole little uh, contrived-for-the-moment uh, several-decades-long superhero backstory for the Marvel Universe covering what happened between like World War II and whenever the Fantastic Four showed up. So I guess the Marvel Cinematic U is going that direction, too. And I feel what you're saying about uh, uh, Peggy and Howard being the linchpin of uh, the Marvel C- Cinematic U in the 40s and 50s. And now, moving forward, we've got uh, Hank Pym and Janet Van Dyne uh, as um, another such linchpin uh, inserted in uh, the 60s through the 80s. So we've got some Marvel, some prehistory for this cinematic universe now. I really liked how they started to well, the, how they continue to weave in history from the past, as well as foreshadowing things that are going to happen as well. Uh, in a lot of ways, I like all the cameos that are coming in and out of these things, all the different characters that are crossing over. Um, I thought this movie being so we had we had Avengers and Cap and Thor and Iron Man, and we've had like Agent Carter come in and out of that, and Howard Stark and different other characters. But with Ant-Man, you had the first of the new batch of heroes coming in as cameos and foreshadowing of things to be with Ant-Man, sort of with um, Falcon's appearance, which was, I thought, awesome. I was a little disappointed when they leaked it on a uh, TV commercial I saw, and I'm like, oh, well, that's kind of weird. Glad to see it was actually part of the movie and not one of the after-scenes that they were showing. Yeah. So it made more sense to have it on a trailer, even though to me I was like, oh, well, they, that would have been a better surprise for the movie to see the first time, but it was still cool. Oh, yeah. Well, well I know we're, we're jumping around a little bit here. Uh, one of the things – one of the criticisms I've, I've been hearing, which I, I, I can't – I don't – I think it's ridiculous, is um, they keep saying that if Edgar Wright would have done it, how much better the movie would have been. And I don't think we'll know that. The one thing we do know is he wanted this to essentially be a standalone Whereas in why they parted ways is Marvel wanted to be part of the universe. So scenes like that that I really enjoyed wouldn't have been in the movie. Yeah. So would the rest of it have been better? Potentially. But I like the, the notion that this is all one big continuous universe as yeah. opposed to Ant-Man that's off wherever. Doing his own little thing and maybe or maybe not ever even mention anything else about the rest. Right. I even like little... the, the uh, little – offhanded remark about people that climb walls now that they had in the middle of the thing. Yep. It's our first indication that there might be a web slinger somewhere out there in the the MCU, as indeed there will be pretty soon. 
But yeah, yeah, I agree. The interconnectedness is a good thing, as it always has been in the comics. Um, and I also, I, I agree with what you're saying there, Matt, that uh, uh, it, it, it's not, if Edgar Wright had stuck around and if this had been its own little pocket universe in which Ant-Man was the only costumed hero there was or ever had been, uh, yeah, that would not necessarily have made it a stronger picture. And it's, it, to me, it's just kind of hypothetical, hindsighted hand-wringing uh, from people who see the flaws in this movie. And I do agree with them as in as much as there are flaws in this movie, but they're just thinking that... Uh, uh, you know, if, if only Edgar Wright had stuck around, you know, everything would have been fine and ideal and utopian, and, 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 and no, it probably wouldn't have been. Yeah. But anyway, to those people, we can say, you know, large chunks of Edgar Wright's original screenplay still made it into the final version of this movie. So it, it's, if Edgar Wright had uh, realized his complete cinematic vision, it might have been a better movie in some respects, but it just as likely would have been a weaker movie in others. Yeah. Um, what did you guys think of Scott Lang? What, was he – I don't know much about his history in the comics. Is he more of a kind of a criminal element at first? I think his character from the comics came across pretty well here in the yeah. movie. I mean, some details were changed, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, for example, he wasn't invited by Hank Pym to steal the Ant-Man suit as a kind of audition. Uh, he uh, He needed it to – I think he'd done a job as an engineer at Avengers Mansion. Yeah, n- not a criminal job, but uh, he was an ex-con. I-, I think he'd been kind of lured into a life of crime under extenuating circumstances, and he had uh, he'd pretty safely reformed by then. But then his daughter, Cassie, you know, she was a part of his backstory from the very beginning, his mm-hmm. very first appearances. Uh, she fell ill, and uh, I think he needed to he needed the Ant Man suit in order to obtain. Uh, Either she was kidnapped by criminals or she was terminally ill, and he, he needed the Ant-Man suit uh, to do something that would save her life. Okay. So, uh, and Hank Pym gave him a pass because of all that and even allowed him to keep the Ant-Man gear, which Hank Pym by that time wasn't even using anymore. He'd gone on to his yellow jacket identity. And he said, yeah, it's okay. You just go ahead and be Ant-Man as long as you promise me you're going to use it to fight evil and, and for all the right reasons from here on out. Yeah. Well, this is the other thing. The, uh, the, the guy that Hank Pym slammed his head on the table... Um, I forget the name of his character, but I did a little research on him, and apparently he either – I think he was – he stole the Ant-Man suit before Eric O'Grady got it. So hmm. huh. uh, he is that. a character that existed before the movie, and he was basically a, bat, a villainous uh, um, S.H.I.E.L.D. agent when they had possession of it. Okay. Mitchell Carson? That's the name I'm getting from IMDb here. Yeah. Interesting. Yep, I had not known that. I also had never heard of Darren Cross as a character, but uh, no, I really hadn't either. Yeah, I looked him he, up, and apparently he figured I, into like uh, uh, Scott Lang's first couple of appearances in Marvel premiere. Okay. The um, one of the things I do like about Paul Rudd, <laughs> Sophie. One of the things <laughs> I do like about Paul Rudd is I'm getting it. Is um, it's is had his typical type of witty banter. That he does. And I think if they ever, you know, when Robert Downey Jr. moves on, you can essentially have him walk into that type of personality role. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it won't be the same, but it'll be similar enough. I mean, one of the, I guess, alternate scenes when he gives his name, he says Iron Man was taken. And he already established that he has some notion of how, uh, m- m- I think it was mechanical engineering. Right. He has yeah. a master's so, in that. Yeah. So he, he does show... That he's not just 
some dummy, he does have some type, of, some level of uh, intelligence to him. So it wouldn't be the same, but at the same time, I think you could, they could probably just slide it over and probably be cheaper since Robert Downey Jr. is asking for like $50 million uh, a movie at this point. So you could have Scott Lang as uh, the tech guy for yeah, the Avengers. The gadget the guy. Yeah. And, 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 and if, if Pym is financing him. Yeah. You know, and even if even if Pim, you know, Michael Douglas comes on every now and then, I don't know what his deal is if if he signed on for multiple appearances in the Marvel Cinematic Universe or not. But even if Scott steps into that role and just mentions that Hank's financing him, like like what Matt just said, I mean that would work just as fine. Don't even really need to see Hank. No, no. So I can't imagine they wouldn't have. Uh, got him in a contract for at least, at least two a or couple three pictures. Yeah. Well, I think he signed on for two, and um, um, I can never pronounce her name correctly, but that Evelyn, whatever Evangeline Lily, Lily. yeah, she's on signed on for two as well. I thought that was kind of this. a cool part too that that she's so entrenched in the Marvel universe now for what's going to happen with her. Well, she's I mean, her character. Well, the identity she is going to assume yeah. is such an integral part of the Avengers' history, mm-hmm. founding member. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, it's uh, I'm glad she's going to be around for at least one more appearance. Yeah. Well, this is it. one of one of the things I noted. I, I I supposedly there's feminists that just didn't like the way she was portrayed or whatnot. I actually really liked the way she was portrayed. It wasn't that. That she never, she was never the damsel in distress. No. Uh, she never needed to be rescued. In fact, she was more qualified to do the job than Scott was. Um, and that, uh, oh, it wasn't the fact that he didn't want um, Hope to do it because well, you're a girl. It was because he didn't want to lose her like he lost Janet. So yeah. I, I, I like to me watching. I felt she she came off as a very strong individual, and at no point did she seem to be some weakling. That you know needed that was needed someone to help her out, and I don't think she was cast aside in any manner. Um, I think that her and her father had issues discussing things, mm. which clearly was part of the plot point to begin yeah. with. If anything, the feminist should have been complaining about uh, well, overprotective daddy Hank Pym, yeah, and how the script allowed him to bench her. But I still thought for for her corporate mindset, she was a very strong character, and she was all for. You know, taking over his company and helping Cross in any way, until she saw what he was going to do with the technology. Mm, yeah. I, I that was one of the good casting. I, I really, he's coming. I really like the. Uh, I guess since Sophie brought up, I really like the um, the Thomas uh, little bit that they did. <laughs> yeah, um, I did too. <laughs> I've seen enough of it to be like, oh, that's humorous. But yeah, I thought you'd um, appreciate that. So, were Megan and Sophie with you when you saw it? No, no. Uh, Meg was actually at home with Sophie. So I, after we saw, I said, oh, "I'm going to have to take you to, to see this because I think you'll enjoy it." Because one of the main themes of it is fathers and daughters. Yeah. And uh, this was actually one of the first times having a daughter. I felt some type of like a connection with Scott. Not that I'm, you know, have a criminal past or anything like that, but it was just like, oh, so it's you know, it's, you know a lot of times you have the son, and it's like, well, I don't have a son, so but I have a daughter, and this this was very much, and even with Hank and Hope. Um, that it was a father and son relation. So um, there's sometimes during the movie, I was like, okay, I can kind of relate more to this father daughter uh, theme that's running throughout the movie. Sure. Uh, I, I really enjoyed the casting. Uh, I, I know you, you missed it, Adam, but the, the, the opening scene in 1989 
with just the way Hank got set off and just took the guy's head and slammed it down on the table. Um, and then just the way he was throughout the movie, I thought that was brilliant casting. It was one of those when I heard it, I thought, you know, is, is, it, is this going to be like a ridiculous type of casting? You just want a big name. But I felt like he he took the role and he ran with it. And he, no, they didn't get into any type of abu- uh, that he was abusive or anything like that. You could definitely see that he had some type of a violent streak, especially when certain um, certain buttons were pushed. So I, I, I like the fact that they hinted towards stuff without coming right out and say he was an abusive husband. Well, and, and yeah, even yeah. if they, they decided that they're not going to write him that way, which I can totally see given the current state of the world that, that they're shying away from that being a storyline in the movies, just the fact that he not only has a little bit of a hot temper, but it's all done to protect his family. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's not going to be the abusive one that we've read in the comics all those years ago. It's going to be to protect his wife, her memory, her, his daughter, his um, suit so that it's not used to hurt anybody else, his particles, whatever you want to say. It's all done to protect his integrity and his family. I, I liked how he came off very roguish and has no trust for the Starks. So as yeah. um, Tony and his family look like these these amazing people to the, to the majority of the world. And then here, here you got one guy who's like, you know, I spent all these years t- keeping out of one Stark's hand. I'm not going to hand it over to the other one. And yet Howard in that 89 scene said about how the utmost respect he had for Hank and how he needs him. Oh, yeah, he's this or that, whatever he said. He made a comment about how um, uh, unpredictable Hank can be, but he still needs him. He still respects his ability as a scientist and for what he's created. I, I have to say – that that scene, I thought they dropped the ball a little bit. And uh, Kevin Feige, I know you listen to the show um, only because I'm saying that. But I think if when you do the sequel, since you already touched upon the fact that you know Hank knows how to enlarge things as well as shrink them, uh, you should touch upon that scene and maybe have Howard say something along the lines of, "I have a brilliant young uh, biochemist at my Baltimore branch in planning and research uh, who might be able to help decode Pym's formula." And right there, you open up for Doctor uh, Bill Foster. Okay. And then maybe you don't have to go Black Goliath, but you could just call him Goliath. But you could essentially introduce another character, and kind of like the way it was in the comics, yeah. how he helped Pym figure out how to get back to, to regular size when he was Giant Man. Yeah. Um. So I think that 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 was kind of a missed opportunity that you could have. Dropped a little bit of a hint that, hey, you know what? There is somebody else out there that you could work into Ant-Man's cast. Because another negative I had was I thought his crew or Scott's crew became kind of annoying after a while. <laughs> well, I think if they would do that same stick in the next movie, it would be a little bit annoying. But I think going through the whole way with this one, even doing that where the one guy's voicing everything that's happening as you're cutting to the different scenes of seeing the explanations mm, yeah. was funny enough the first time. And, and I gave it a pass the second time because of who, who got their guest shot in that scene at the end, but it was still good enough for the one movie. I don't want to see that again and again and again. Mm. Well, now, is, I, it I even like, a, is it a foregone conclusion that there's going to be? Oh, right, right, right. My understanding is that it's, well, it, it, it did 53 mil in its first weekend, which is enough to top the box office, I think, for this week. But it uh, it's the second weakest opening um, for a Marvel Cinematic Universe movie so far. But I think you're going to get word of mouth. Was weaker. Yeah. I, I mean, I've been looking on the forums, and some people have already seen the movie twice. 
Yeah, I think you're going to get word of mouth on this one. To me, this this is opening up how I ex- expected Guardians to open up. A little bit slower, get some word of mouth going. People that are in the know and see it, pass it on to friends at work and coworkers and family members. And before you know it, by the time the DVD rolls around, people are ready to not only have seen it and boosted its box office, but then go buy out the DVDs and Blu-rays and all that. Whereas Guardians, that was just a complete surprise. I never expected that to do the box office that it did. Well, I was listening to the sports show that I, I listen um, to regularly through Boston, and they were talking about just briefly about last Friday. You're gonna go see it, and they were like, "No." And one guy said, "I'm not really interested, but I wasn't interested in Guardians of the Galaxy, and I love the movie. And if they can do the same type of vein where they're they're not they're kind of mocking themselves as they're doing it," he said, "I I could get behind the movie, and I'll go see it." Yeah. So, and I kind of got that impression. That um, that's how they they took this movie, and that's why I think if Guardians did so well, I don't know if it'll do Guardians mo- money, but I, I think it could it could do enough to warrant a sequel. Sequel, and they've already talked about some of the things that they'd like, like to do in a sequel. Yeah, yeah, I, th- I think in the end it'll it'll generate enough for at least one sequel, and if not, he'll become a more mainstay character in the oh. regular Marvel well, there's universe. There's absolutely no doubt he's going to show up in future Avengers movies yeah. like, as an Avenger. We, we already know he's going to be in Cap Civil War. Yeah, yeah. Which, yeah. God, that list of cast must be insane. Well, um, I, unfortunately, I'm a little disappointed because I wanted it to be a Cap movie, and now it seems basically like another Avengers movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We're changing Captain America and what those guys have been establishing with um, with their trilogy, uh, it's falling prey to the same degenerative disease that's uh, afflicted Batman v Superman: Dawn of Justice. Yeah, yeah. Trying in a lot of ways, stuff too much into it. I really thought Cap Three would be more of a searching for Bucky and finding Bucky and leading into the next Avengers, not be most of the. I mean, so, it's Civil the War. Stuff but I've still. heard. The stuff I heard, that's what it was supposed to be. Um, but they kind of got told, this is what we need you to do. Well, and so. with, this, with this particular movie house and all of these movies, I'm, I'm more inclined to give them enough rope to hang themselves with because they have yet to disappoint me, really, yeah. on, on anything, um, for the most part. There, there's not one of those movies that I won't watch again. Or listen and, to. Or listen to, and most of them multiple times. Um, I loved the inclusion of... Hank Pym as Ant-Man during wars in the past. Was it the Korean War that he was taking part in? Uh, I think there was... They they recorded a scene where he was uh, flipping over and shrinking a tank in Cuba. Okay. And and then that uh, would have set up the... uh, The the whole tank. Oh, absolutely. But then they cut that out because they thought they gave it... It was giving too much away. It would have been a surprise. The first time I saw the tank thing, I was like, all right, it's a tank. The second and third time, I'm like, all right, that's a shrunken tank, and it's going to come into play, which yep. I'm glad it did. I mean, it was very predictable, it was, but it was ridiculously funny to it, me. It was. Um, but I liked how they include him now in past footage of battling things. I like how you get the uh, explanation of Janet's wasp and what happened to her, which also led to Scott finding a way back, which maybe now I, – I have – to me, to a certain extent, I have no doubt that Hank will go back in and find Janet now. Yeah, because time and space well, have no meaning there, right. after all. Well, this is the thing. Uh, a couple things on that, actually. Uh, I saw after the movie, after I saw it, I was watching something with the director, and he said there are a ton of Easter eggs. And one of them is in that quantum zone or whatever that, that they call it. Yep. Um, if you look quickly, you will see somebody there. 
Oh, really? So they they already hinted that it's presumed it's going to be Walsh because I've also heard, well, this could help wrap in with um, Doc Strange. Yeah, that's what I but heard it, too. But it's more so presumed that it's the Wasp. Huh. Um, I do like the idea of a little bit of that time has no meaning because I, uh, uh, Michael Douglas wrote out there that in a sequel he'd like uh, his wife to play Janet. And I thought I, I could kind of see that. I, I and then because of their age, oh, yeah. the way they look, yeah. she's been trapped in there for so many years while he aged. Right. Uh, huh. um, so I, like, I thought that was kind of an idea. Th- yeah. But when when Scott was was stuck there, as soon as he shrunk down, I thought, well, why don't you just use your um, enlarged mm-hmm. um, formula? And so that I thought was kind of predictable. How well, going to get out of it. I did, but I think that that the the whole part of so he says he doesn't remember anything about what it looked like, what it felt like, because his brain just could not comprehend what was happening. And mm-hmm. I think that's kind of the same thing. You know, your first thought is, well, he just has to whip out one of those things in his wrists, do something with it, and he'll be fine. But he's going at such an alarming rate down that it really takes his daughter's voice to finally penetrate to him, to finally jog him to think he's got some other thing that he could try. At first, I thought that just took too long of him shrinking down, 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 down. But he's really just lost at that point. And then it, his daughter, rightfully so and, and very predictable, that brings him back yes. um, to something that he could think. But, yeah, totally predictable. But I was okay with it for, for how it was presented. Yeah, I mean, and that was, I really enjoyed the, the effects. Oh, my gosh. I didn't see the 3D, so I don't know how they look in 3D because I don't, I don't subscribe to that, mm-hmm. uh, that fad. But, Nor do uh, I. Neither, me either. The, the stuff that I saw I thought was great. It didn't seem cheesy to me. Although I do kind of liked how – the 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 footage of of Hank as Ant Man how that kind of seemed to not that it looked ridiculous but it kind of like flowed with the equipment that they were using to record this stuff mm-hmm. um, so I thought that was kind of neat how they they made the technology not look as sharp in the video archive video footage of Hank yeah mm-hmm. and you mean the scene when um, well when Hank and uh, the Wasp are trying to disable that missile or is this a like an earlier the, scene. Uh, the video footage that Cross wound up showing to basically say, I know about Ant-Man. And oh, that, yeah, with the, the, the tiny little speck yeah. in the background. Yeah, flying as, around. As soldiers are punched out by seemingly nothing and yeah. uh, vehicles are thrown around, yeah. What did you guys think of the um, Ocean's Eleven heist type of feel to the movie? Oh, I was fine with that. I love those movies. But Adam? It's appropriate for Scott Lang, certainly. I, I was I was really feeling the vibe in the early scenes, like when uh, when Scott is first introduced to, uh, well, um, not Luis's two friends, Dave and Kurt. I think their names were. They, and mm-hmm. you're you're right, Matt. They, those three. I was thinking of them as like Manny, Moe, and Jack, or oh yeah, or, or Winky, Blinky, and Naughty. But yeah. by the end, they they were, they were total comedy relief bumbling. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's it's one of several like uh, comedy action heist and or underdog comedy cliches yeah. that uh, kind of infest this movie. Um, but yeah, at the beginning is when when they're first getting acquainted. I was like, oh, all right, I can see this uh, being kind of a fun heist thing. But uh, it, it, it became sort of less that as it wore on. Oh, it totally did. But yeah, the, the first round when they first went into Hank Pym's house, I kind of got that Ocean's Eleven uh, on a much smaller scale vibe. Yeah. But yeah, I, I was fine with that. Well, that's the thing. When I kept reading, that's what the theme of this movie was going to be. I was like, is this going to be good? How are they going to pull this off? 
Uh, and then once I saw it, I thought, well, this was brilliant. This was the perfect thing to do. And it, again, it's another example of how like Thor the Dark World was kind of more of like a Lord of the Rings and, and Winter Soldier is more of like a spy thriller. So mm-hmm. um, it's a new character and rather than just do a generic – to some extent maybe it is an origin movie, mm-hmm. they they made it a heist movie where you got the origin incorporated. So it was kind of its own thing without – being that could easily have been other characters that we've already seen their origin movies still still getting the origin still getting um an element of scott's past still getting an element of control by hank because he obviously you know in in his words has had his eye on him for some time and allowed him to do that showing um that hank was ready to do something about it and needed somebody to do it with him and certainly didn't want to sacrifice or, or put his daughter at risk um no, I, I thought that whole that whole scene of figuring out what to do leak, and then finding out that he leaked the information in that whole chain, that first time especially was was pretty well done. What did you uh, What you guys think of with um, all the ants that they incorporate? I didn't really I didn't realize how. Well, I knew there was a lot of different types of ants, but to, that they seem more of a character as opposed to something that was just there, and the way that they were able to use. This type of ant to take out the um, the hard drives, and this one to do the aerial assault, and this one to the architects. Um, I thought that was neat how they they used, mm-hmm. and they didn't they didn't go overboard and use like a dozen different ants. They just kind of stuck to what was it four or five, and yeah, uh, yeah, and then they can introduce some more exotic species in the next one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm glad that they're specializing. Yeah, you know, different ants for uh, you know the right ant for the job. Yeah, I wouldn't go so far as to say they felt like characters, but it did feel like they were. Being you know, creative, imaginative in the you know, well, except for the resources that would realistically be available to a character who wants to control sure. ants as a power. Naturally, yeah. he wouldn't limit himself to just one type of ant. And each type did seem to have its own distinctive character. The crazy ants were kind of cute and puppy-like, and they had their friskiness and their electrical manipulation. And and then they had the uh, I've forgotten what they were called, but the larger oh, God, the, the ants uh, that score the highest on the Schmidt pain index. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then the fire ants who are not only known for their bite but for building those uh, elaborate structures out of their own bodies. Yeah, yep. Cool cool stuff, yeah. Um, the only one uh, which was Antony, which I love that he named the ant. Cause yes, and the instant he did, you knew he was going to die. <laughs> oh, my God, yeah. Yeah. But yeah. That, was, that was cool. I wish you could have come up with a slightly more creative name than Antony, though. I liked it for this one, and I think if he names another one, that should be a little more creative. But I was fine with it just being kind of quirky and goofy considering – the way – and I don't think they said it in the movie, although I forget now seeing the trailers in the movie where he said could they change the name for being how silly Ant-Man really is as a name to name his flying companion Antony. I was fine yeah. with that in this After case. After Douglas had already uh, told him pretty firmly they don't have names. They yeah. have numbers. Do you yeah. have any idea how many ants there are? Well, I'm going to name this one and he's well, going to be Antony. That was one of the things that uh, I've been looking at a bunch of different Easter eggs that they had in there. Like, for instance, when Scott's walking to the um, Milgram Hotel, mm-hmm. uh, after named after Al, mm-hmm. uh, there's posters of the Brazilian uh, pop drink that Banner was working at in um, the beginning of Incredible Hulk. Okay. Uh, but but one of them is that the Anthony was number 248 – or 247, 248, and that has to do with the introduction of – uh, it's either Scott and his run or um, Hank. There's a specific that that correlated with their appearances. Okay. Uh, well, yeah. Well, Marvel sort of... premiere number forty-seven and forty-eight were uh, Scott Lang's first appearances as Ant-Man. He had one okay. cameo in the Avengers before that. So uh, that those were some of the the things that they had 
picked out as uh, could that mean something more? Um, which which I think is, is neat because he also threw in their tails to astonish. Uh huh. Right, and, and Cross's little speech to the investors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Um, how about the cameo of the guy from Saturday Night Live? Oh, da- oh, Garrett Morris. Loved, loved, loved Ant-Man. that. Yeah, I saw him and I thought, is that Garrett Morris? Yep. I, I did, at the time, I didn't really make the connection as to why Garrett Morris I didn't would, either. would have a cameo in something like this. But then, oh, wait a minute, wasn't there some kind of uh, Marvel hero cocktail party yep. skit with Belushi as the Hulk? Yep. And, and yep. back in the 70s, and, uh, and Garrett Morris was... So now, now that, to me has to be one of the, if not the best cameos in a movie like this in a very long time, if not forever. Very subtle, though. Yeah, and incredibly so. I mean, and and it's fine to be subtle like that because enough people know who he is without knowing what he did on Saturday Night Live as the Ant-Man for that cocktail party. And you go do one little quick Google search and boom, it comes right up. So it's... it serves both purposes for people who know exactly why it's there and for people who are like, oh, okay, well, that's cool. He's in there. I know who he is. Now I wonder if there's anything related to why he's in there. Well, and that's when I, when, I, when I saw that, I was wondering, is that right? Or Because I know Paul Rudd also did some flushing out of the script after Wright left. Yep. He actually and I got a credit as a screenwriter, um, yeah. yeah. With the Falcon, after seeing Winter Soldier, he's like, why don't we get – a, a crossover with him to come in. So I know that part was, was Rudd's idea um, or him and somebody else that want to see it. But anyway, you know, how much was that? Whose idea was that to, to throw that little, little uh, Easter egg in there? Yeah. Um, speaking of the Falcon, I really like, I said earlier about the, the, the next group of heroes to come in and cameo in movies. I like that they did that um, to show, not only the larger Marvel universe to not sh- only to not keep Falcon just as a cap companion or while he'll be in the Avengers and in other things, he really is tied to cap closest of all, but this kind of gives him somebody else that they can tie him to some other interaction without retreading. Oh, there's Thor again. Oh, there's Hulk again. Oh, there's banner. There's Iron Man, whoever you want to use who has cameoed through all these things all this time, movies and the TV shows. Now you have somebody else from the next generation right. or next group. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. Well, they only have a limited number of uh, times that they can use all these characters. Oh, sure, before absolutely. Before they use up all the uh, uh, contractual appearances that they right. built up, like Mark Ruffalo was signed up for like nine or something like that, and we already got him as Banner at the end of Iron Man three. So, yep. yeah, so now we've got these new, as you say, new characters, new actors, <laughs> uh, new sets of contractually obligated cameos. And, yeah, and and it makes sense not only business wise but also cinematic universe wise too makes sense that uh, the falcon would be one of those who would have the most free time to be hanging around the avengers compound (laughs) although if they're trying to build him up as a respectable uh, superhero character and ass kicker uh, he kind of got ant-man made him look pretty bad oh yeah yeah he did i do have to say one of my probably one of my top favorite lines of the whole movie is when they got out when when scott and anthony and the and the ants got out of the plane and as the clouds clear they realize that it's the new avengers compound and he says uh you said it was a warehouse you son of a bitch (laughs) (laughs) that was funny yeah. Um, I, One of my favorite lines was in that same sequence where he says, it seems like kind of a big jump from sugar cubes to this. <laughs> I, that was one of the things that that I was a little, I don't know, not to go all cat from uh, Age of Ultron, but they use shit a lot. 
And at one point I was like, is this going to be like Daredevil where they use that type of language more often? Is that kind of take out? And I mean, I have no problems hearing it or seeing it, but it just seems out of place. Like if I saw a Batman movie and, and he said shit, it, to me it just seems out of place. It doesn't offend me. It just seems this isn't something that I've ever read the character saying. Hmm. Well, um, yeah, it would be out of character for Batman, but what if, say, Harvey Bullock said it? Yeah. Well, no, I mean that that's something that wouldn't seem out of place to me. Um, so there was a couple points when I was – Watching this, it's like I don't know either character enough beyond the superficial, yeah. knowing Scott and, and more so with Hank. Um, so I was kind of like, ah. but it didn't, they used it more than I thought they were going to, but not to the point where it, it really took me out of is this something that a Marvel superhero would be saying? Now, I, I've taken Ben to almost, if not every Marvel movie that has come out. Over the last couple years now, since uh, since Avengers, that was his first one. I think when we all got together and saw um, down in Jersey right. with the Wild Pig crew, I think that was the first one he got to see in the theater. And ever since then, I've taken Ben to every single one. And like I said, I'm going to take him in the next week or two to go see it too. Um, Matt's also gone to most of them. He didn't go see uh, Cap Two because I wasn't too sure how he would go. That's a little bit more serious Not of a movie. Not the best one for younger kids, yeah. Um, he saw Guardians, though, right? He saw Guardians, yep. And I don't. And he saw Avengers 2. I'm not sure if he saw Thor 2. I, boy, I just can't remember if I took him to see that or not. No, I don't think I did. I don't think he's seen either Thor movie. So there are things that, that Matt is and is not interested in, whereas Ben's a little bit more all in to go see those kind of things. And um, I kept looking over at Matt when I thought to take my eyes off the screen for a split second and boy he was laughing up a storm he was smiling he was enjoying it um he at the end of the movie asked a couple of the questions and they were the right questions for things that he may not ever have seen or heard of being you know 10 11 years old and never really reading much about ant-man or the avengers at this point um i was i was really happy to see him get so engrossed and enjoy it and and part of that is due to the trailers with the Thomas the Tank Engine stuff and the <laughs> silly things that they showed already. Um, he was looking forward to those things. So when they really happened then towards the end of the movie, he was just all in. I mean, if he was all in the whole way, but he really got a kick out of that kind of stuff then. So I, I think their marketing, marketing did it right to help interest kids that may be on the fence. I certainly think this being... Well, I think rated PG-13 like most of the other Marvel movies, um, I think was certainly suitable for, for Matt to go see who has seen both Avengers movies and Guardians of the Galaxy and stuff. Uh, yeah, he, he really got a kick out of it. It was a lot of fun to watch him. Glad to hear it. Yeah. Was there anything you guys uh, not necessarily hated but were like, eh – I could have done without, or I wish this would have been just a little bit different. Uh, well, now might be a time for me to sound off. Good. Because I've kind of been holding back so far, because clearly Uh-oh. you guys enjoyed this more than I did. And it's, it's not that I didn't enjoy it. I, I was entertained. I mean, th- this is... All right. Full disclosure here. This is actually a cinematic experience that I've been looking forward to having for a long time. Now, I know Edgar Wright had been trying to get an Ant-Man movie made for over a decade. Really? Like, like yeah, he was yeah. started making pitches shortly after uh, the first uh, Sam Raimi Spider-Man movie. Oh, was wow. A, a, a certified success. Huh. And I thought from the very start, you know, the, a lot of other my fellow geeks at that time, people I, who I'd see at uh, the comic shop at State College, for example, uh, were a little skeptical about whether or not uh, – 
an Ant-Man movie could work, and I always thought that, heck, yes, you know, shrinking is an undeservedly maligned uh, superpower, and, uh, and any a movie starring a shrinking superhero, like an Ant-Man or an Atom over on the, uh, the DC side of things, could sure. very easily work as a kind of a cool espionage action thriller. And what we got here is really more of a heist movie than a spy movie, mm-hmm. and that's fine, because shrinking uh, is well-suited to that as well. Um, so I be- I've uh, been keeping the faith all this time that a good Ant-Man movie could be made. And so I, I wanted to be proven right, at least as so far as uh, uh, a movie that demonstrated that shrinking was a demonstrably cool superpower. And the movie that we got here um, absolutely, I think, succeeds th- thus far. Um, because, uh, as Matt said, the special effects look great. I mean, it's uh, you know, the, it, it was shot in a, a different aspect ratio than the usual uh, Marvel movies. Don't even ask me what that means. Okay. But it was done to... Uh, um, to accommodate uh, the different, you know, the, the, the crazily changing perspectives of, of a shrinking and growing character. Mm-hmm. And it came off just fine. Uh, the CGI, I've seen better CGI in my time, but I've also seen much worse. And we have to keep in mind that they kind of had to change uh, their production uh, strategies in mid-swing. Uh, they they kind of had less time to work to get all this stuff done uh, with, with the change in director in midstream, you know, going over from Edgar Wright to Peyton Reed. Yeah. Uh, that, that cost them a little bit of time because the studio refused to change the release date. So uh, the, the special effects were great. Not as great as they could have been, but I cut them some slack for that. Um, but uh, where I begin to fall out of love with the movie is that I just wish that these great special effects that do wonders to prove that a shrinking and growing superhero can be cool, that size uh, manipulation is a legit superpower for a movie action hero. I just wish that all of this had a better movie to hang all of that on. Um, because what we got here, it's a lot of it was pretty badly cliched, to be truthful. Uh, a lot of the time, I felt like I was watching like, like a 90s underdog comedy or a, a comedy heist picture. Um, we've already covered uh, you know, the, the Three Stooges, uh, yeah. uh, Scott's Buddies. Uh, the, the, a lot of the, the, the characters in this movie are stock types. Um, Hope Van Dyne is another one. She's the... Uh, you know, the initially disapproving and contemptuous, uh, no-nonsense professional female character who eventually falls in love for the uh, schlubby, eventually comes around and softens her position on the schlubby male hero and becomes his love interest by the end. You know, the first time we see Hope Van Dyne, we know that uh, she's eventually going to kiss Scott Lang by the end of it. And uh, she, her, her presence in this movie was just kind of unpleasant most of the time. You know, Whatever the concerns of those uh, feminists that Matt mentioned earlier aside, you know, I don't think that that was the problem with the character. She was just kind of well, nasty and predictable and not very original. Uh, and even worse in that regard, I think, was Darren Cross. I mean, there's not a damn thing original or interesting about that character. He's just the generic evil, ruthless, demented businessman, right down to the bald head. He's like a, a pale copy of the Jeff Bridges Obadiah Stane character from the first Iron Man movie, who is himself arguably a pale character of a post-crisis Lex Luthor. Sure. Uh, so, yeah, he's... That scene where uh, he uses the shrink ray gun to zap that guy in the bathroom and reduces him down to a pulsating, goo. gooey <laughs> wad of flesh on the bathroom floor and then flushes him down a toilet. That's, I mean, it's, we get it, okay? He's, he's ruthless and bloodthirsty, and the pin particles are already starting to affect his brain, and also point to the size-changing technology is very dangerous. I think you've overstated your point. I was about ready to puke up my popcorn at that scene. Just, ugh. More graphic than it needed to be. And, uh, 
Then we have uh, the Scott Lang supporting cast from the beginning. Now, not only his three buddies, but uh, we've got uh, uh, his ex-wife. You know, this is a big summer for Judy Greer because she yeah. gets to play the same completely disposable, superfluous, two-dimensional, incidental character in not one but two uh, summer blockbusters. She gets to play the uh, beleaguered, concerned mom of endangered children in both Ant-Man and Jurassic World. And <laughs> then her husband, the uh, you know the stereotypical douchebag new husband slash stepfather of the hero's child character. He also happens to be a cop, so he can... Uh, plague Scott Lang on more than one level, yeah. and the daughter herself. I mean, I know you guys as parents relate to this, but it's. I was kind of hoping that Cassie Lang would turn out to be older, um, you know, so she would have a chance to be have a little more of a personality. Instead, she's just this daddy, daddy, this squeaky voiced, adorable little liability for Scott. That, that's all she is. That's her function to the plot, and it's when, and especially when you know talking about how the the villain is one of the most. Uh, cliched and tedious things about the whole movie. When he puts on his yellow jacket armor and immediately buzzes off to threaten Cassie, of all things, for yeah. him to do. That's I was like, yeah, screw that. And yeah, and uh, the actress, that, the, like the little kid actress that got to play Cassie, wasn't even cute. So yeah, that that part of the movie. The, the, there's lots of things in here that uh, could have been. They could have worked a little harder to avoid falling into the pitfalls of cliches. That's one of the things that. Uh, the first Iron Man movie I thought did so well was that it uh, very deftly and artfully even circumvented a lot of the cliches that surrounded uh, superhero movies and other related genre films. Uh, this one seems to sink into them up to their waist, uh, up to its waist. So, you know, I'm not saying that I didn't enjoy the movie. It's, uh, it gave me what I hoped for as far as shrinking as a superpower and uh, vindicating Ant-Man and his size-changing ilk as uh, you know, legitimate action heroes. But the movie itself wasn't such a great story, and it, uh, uh, there were a lot of places where I thought they could have been a little more creative. I'll definitely agree with you. One, for Matt to say, what's your least favorite part? I do think that bathroom scene and the cross-character... <laughs> Probably, as much as I love the yellow jacket outfit and thought that was a cool villainous looking thing. It is a cool design. I definitely agree there. I do think he was very cliche and, and used very easily to, okay, we're going to kill this guy and here's this little goo and be overdramatic about it. And as soon as he put it on, you're right. You knew he was going to go get the daughter because that's what he's going to do to threaten everybody. And not only give Scott purpose to save his daughter and in her eyes bring him to the hero status that she thinks he is – it's also going to allow that douchebag of a cop stepfather, new husband, to be okay with Scott mm, and yeah, let have, Scott make good with and him. have the the ex wife be oh well Scott okay I get it now you're trying we will allow you back into our lives yeah. so that your adoring little Achilles heel can hug you again I I don't disagree with that um, I still liked it enough that I kind of glaze over that a little bit but I can totally understand and see your point. Yeah. He is probably just the the very generic villain and the weakest part of the movie for me. Well, I have to say, actually, something that I will piggyback on. Um, Adam mentioned um, was it Jeff Bridges, and then that kind of seemed like a post-crisis uh, Lex Luthor. Yeah. I actually, there's a bunch of times going, is this Kevin Spacey? From Superman Returns because he reminded me exactly like Kevin Spacey in Superman Returns. Yeah. Or, or you mean uh, Jeff Bridges or the, the, the Darren the Cross? Darren, Darren Cross. Cross. Darren Cross. Yeah. He also um, reminds me a lot of uh, Keegan Michael Key from Key and Peele on Comedy Central, which made it that oh, much harder okay. for me to take him seriously. <laughs> Expected well, him to uh, go into I a song and thought dance. a better casting because he was in the movie originally was Patrick Wilson, and I thought he would have to me he would have brought more to the role. 
But then I found out he wasn't actually cast as the as Darren Cross. He was actually originally cast as the um, the boyfriend of um, Scott Lane's ex-wife. Okay. Uh, and then so he would have had a minimal part. He would have just been playing the cop instead of the villain. Uh, so when I found that, I was like, well, it wouldn't make a difference if he was still in the movie. He wouldn't have had the part that I thought he should have had. Um, one of the things with, with – so he he got a little over – Cross just became a cartoon of himself hmm. at times. And something that I, I wrote down is just doesn't make sense to me in the plot is uh, Hank mentioned how it took a, a toll on his body. So you know you could take that as it made him – a little bit more crazy or just warm out a lot more or, or mm. a little bit of both or even maybe the the loss of Janet being that character or being that hero um, just, just drained him completely, not just physically but also mentally, uh, emotionally. But this is the thing. So I'm not convinced that Cross discovered the Pym Particles. I think it's possible that he just created another version of the Pym Particles. But regardless – so they're supposed to set up that he was crazy, and that's why he killed that guy that asked the question. At what point did would Cross have been that exposed to, let's say if it is pin particles, the pin particles, enough for him to be mentally affected? And then later it generates where Janet has – or Hope talks to him about, it's the particles, I can help you. He didn't ingest them. He wasn't trying on the, the yellow jacket suit. Um, he he was exposed to them, but then so were the other scientists. So why weren't why don't we see them going crazy? So one of the the holes that I saw in the plot was if the if the particles affected his judgment and his mindset, then why would and he had the exact same type of exposure as the other people working on those particles? Why wouldn't they have also been um, affected that they were crazy? All right. I think it would have just I think it would have just been simpler that uh, he w- he was jealous. He was power hungry. And he saw himself as the adopted son who got kicked aside by his mentor for for somebody else. Um, and instead of trying to do that stupid scene where, you know, he was going to have somebody else shoot Hank, and he's like, "No, I'll do it," type of thing. Uh, so that was probably the biggest thing that, that I thought my biggest issue with the movie. Can I apply for a no prize here? Uh, sure. Uh, my theory is that. Uh... Well, you note when uh, Cross finally gets around to putting on the yellow jacket suit and uh, gets into this big knockdown, drag out fight scene with Scott Lang, yeah. he seems to understand how to operate it pretty well. My yeah. theory is he's been practicing with it like at full size for some time, and perhaps it's not the pin particles, but the neural interface of the suit itself that's been uh, messing with his his mentality. That could be too. Um, yeah, that would work. I don't disagree that it might be that he created his own version of pin particles, though, given that his goop is yellow and pin particles are in the red goop. Um, and I know that's made to show the difference between the Ant-Man suit and the yellow jacket suit to have the the delineation between two different sets of it's matter. Neatly color-coded. Yeah. Um, but but I don't disagree that it, as, as he created his own version of these things, cracked the code, so to speak, that he didn't do something quite right and it's affecting him in a worse way than a regular pin particle will to anybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, how about the after credit scenes? I thought they should have been switched because usually you have your post credit scene a tie-in to the movie mm-hmm. and your mid credit scene tie-in to the next thing. And I understand why they did it because I think the post credit scene is actually a scene from Civil War, not a setup scene for Civil War. Hmm. Probably. Because we, we kind of just got in the middle of an action where 
they talked about the accord. They talked about um, you know. So if they're already talking about that, presumably either civil war starts off where there's already the government stepping in and Tony siding with one and Cap siding with the other, or it's just a scene from the movie because the beginning of Civil War is going to build up to. Um, well, I have some theories about who's the mastermind behind it, but anyway, um, you know, building up from there. Yeah, yeah, it does. Did seem to be taken a little bit out of context there. But. Yeah, as much as I liked seeing it, it was kind of just out of nowhere and didn't make a whole lot of sense. Versus other ones that definitely led into something else. Yes, and then the mid-credit scene. And you know, you know, I, I said a couple of negative things about the character of Hope Van Dyne, and you know that I thought that, the, that she could have been written a little bit better. You know, she didn't need to be quite so initially disrespectful of uh, of Scott Lang, and you know, the harshness that she showed him was kind of a cliche. And, yeah. Uh, but all the same, you know, I'm glad the character exists. You know, the father daughter dynamic between her and Pym was at least somewhat interesting, mm-hmm. and I'm glad that she is taking up the legacy. Of her mother, and that uh, she will then, you know, there, there will be a wasp in the modern day yeah. Marvel Cinematic Universe. That, that yeah, was a good choice of scene. I'd agree with that because I, 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 I'll be honest, I didn't expect that to be what he was going down there for. I thought he was going to go start searching for a way to find Janet in the scene, and and now that this happened, he would have started messing with the regulator or or something that would have given a glimpse of finding her based on how that end of the movie went. Um, but I was. Very happily surprised that it was the next wasp outfit that they were going to go look at. I, I do like her response of "It's about damn time." <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I don't, I don't uh, hold it against the character for not wanting her to go do that. Yeah, she was way more qualified to be in that Ant Man suit than Scott ever was, at least at the beginning, if not through most of the movie. Um, but given the story, the way it's written, and and the backstory that they gave to Janet and Hank, I totally. Don't disagree with Hank wanting to keep her at arm's length because of that. The fact that it took so many years to bring them back together, eh, maybe. I think he probably could have told her all that stuff a little bit sooner, and it would have made a lot more sense. But, again, very cliche part of the movie, and very very much put there to drive the story the way they wanted it for this first movie. So, it is what it is. I even like... I even liked how Scott acknowledged, he goes, why do you think I'm the suit and not you? I'm expendable. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's Which, the part that I like that, that made it better. Sense. Yeah, I, yeah, I agree. That was kind of a turning point yeah. when things started to feel a little more real yeah. and less contrived. Yeah. And I liked, I liked uh, Rudd's um, kind of offhand quirky comments, like when he ruined the moment between them actually discussing something and she found out about her mom's past and just a couple other little things that I expect from him as an actor that he does very well in anything I see him in, whether it be Clueless or Friends or whatever it is. Um, I like that he was still able to, to pull that through his own personality, so to speak, of how he acts in a character. Yeah, he was the best cast actor in the whole thing. Yeah. He was ideal Scott Lang, I must I was very surprised that. by Michael Douglas. I thought, like Matt, that he would be just kind of there to phone in an appearance and they just wanted a big name and they were able to get him much yeah. like they did Glenn Close in the in Guardians. Yeah, well, I, um, I think his reason was that he basically just wanted his kids and grandkids to be able to see him in a superhero movie. Oh, sure. And and that's not plus, a bad thing. Plus money, of course. Yeah. I mean, look at the the one actor who played Dumbledore. He did it because his grandkid, I think he did it, because his grandkid said, yeah, my God, do it. Um, or, or got excited in some way. I can't quite remember the story. Um, 
what struck me as funny, and, and not that this means anything at all because it's just my mind and how much I like movies. I like that Glenn Close and Michael Douglas have both been in Marvel movies, yet they were in <laughs> Fatal Attraction together all those years ago. Actually, some of the, the footage that I, that I read that they pulled to get Michael – they had a stand-in for his body in 1989, but they used you know CGI to generate his, his face. Sure. And some of the, what they pulled was from um, Fatal Attraction <laughs> nice. to, to give him that look of how he looked at, at the time. Nice. Yeah, I'm really sorry I missed those scenes. Oh, it was so good. I, I might feel a little stronger about Michael Douglas in the part if I had seen him, you know, CGI'd back into youth and vitality. Well, and and because we know what the character has done in the comic books, yeah, the first thought yeah, I thought right, of was our expectations okay. are different. He did something to Janet that that we know and are very familiar with from the comic books, and that's not the way the movie turns out, of course. But still, it was a neat scene, even just from a a, a comic book standpoint. That oh my god, if they're going to do that. Wow, they're really showing him on the edge of snapping on, on anybody that mentions her name or anybody that does anything like that. Um, it was a neat scene for, for many reasons. Well, I, I'm definitely going to try to see it again and with Meg. And I would, one of the things that I found out about, and I'd encourage anyone else to go see it multiple times, apparently the majority of the Easter eggs are actually in, in Hank Pym's um, Victorian house. Like pictures and um, Peyton reads that anytime there's a news article that they point you to one thing, just look at some of the other articles that are going on on okay. um, that page. So he said there's a lot of stuff to look for, but he, he specifically pointed out in uh, um, in Hank's house there's a, a plethora of things. So nice, very good. All right, uh, are we gonna rank the Marvel oh, movies? Yeah. Oh, first, or uh, do a ranking oh. of this movie. Go ahead. Uh, we do have uh, some um, additional input on the subject of the Ant-Man movie here. So let's let's hear what this uh, mysterious caller has to say. You know, a lot of people have been talking about Ant-Man of late, which is a surprise to me. But, you know, this is the first time for everything. I'll be honest with you. I mean, I served with Hank Pym. But really, all I remember was him... Creating Ultron and smacking his wife around. That's pretty much it. But you know, there was this one time, this one night, early days, Saturday night, I think, everybody was out, and in the mansion it was just Hank Pym and me, and I was watching an old, well, monster movie on the TV. I watched a lot of TV when I first got out of the ice. I mean, you can't blame me, really. It was pretty exciting. Watching this monster movie, and I had got a, a popcorn kernel just really stuck up in there. I'm gonna teach. You ever get that? You know, it's in the gum in the back, and you're working it with your tongue, and you're working, you're working, you're working, you're working, and you, just, you can't get the goddamn thing out. And it had been long enough, finally had a thought, and I said, Hey, hey, man, hey, Hanky Pim. Have you ever heard the fable of the little mouse and the elephant with a thorn in its paw? Now, when I told him what I wanted him to do, he, he didn't want to do it. I don't blame him for that. But I sweetened the deal. I said, look, how about when we take our Avengers pictures, you can do that thing where you stand on the shoulder for the picture. <laughs> and he did it. <laughs> he started 
started being Giant Man shortly after that. I don't know if that's a coincidence. Do it. Do it. So there's uh, what Drunk Cap has to say about Ant Man. And, uh, also, what Sophie has to say. <laughs> All right. So. That's yeah, so funny. we mentioned earlier that Ant-Man makes an even dozen uh, Marvel Cinematic uh, Universe releases. And, uh, well, Matt uh, had the idea a little while ago that uh, since a couple of folks on the Comic Geek Speak forums have been uh, doing their ranked lists of the first 12, uh, maybe we ought to take a stab at doing the same thing here quick at the end of this episode. Well, before we do that, should we rank this one on the scale from 1 to 5? Oh, yeah, the frickin' sweeter scale. Yeah. All right. Uh, for me, it's a 3. I give it a 4. I give it four as well. Okay, so now we're doing the movie listings? Yep. Listings? Okay. I guess so. Who wants to go first? I think you should go first, Matt. Ah, uh, great. Yeah, uh, your idea. <laughs> go first. <laughs> well, that's okay. I'm trying to do a couple things right here. Uh, <laughs> all right. At the top of my list, I'll start at the bottom. Start at the bottom because I'm going to go backwards too. All okay. right. If that's the uh, Now, let me just put it this way. If you are in a class of 12 people, and you got a 90%, that's still good. You're just at the bottom of the class, right? Right. If they do everyone – okay, so I want to preface this by saying I give all these movies essentially A's. It's just if I had to rank them, not everyone could have 100%. Some just have to have 90%. It's still an A. Right. All right, so number 12 for me would be The Incredible Hulk. Um, I, unfortunately, I had to put Iron Man 2 as number 11. Uh, there's a bunch of things I liked in that, but uh, just – the way things fall. Uh, Guardians of the Galaxy would be number 10. I'll smack you. <laughs> uh, hey, you're lucky. You got that. It was between that one and Iron Man 2, which one fell <laughs> a little bit further. Um, Thor as 9. Uh, Thor Dark World as 8. Uh, Iron Man 3 as 7. Uh, 6 would be Ant-Man. 5, Iron Man. Uh, Captain America First Avenger would be 4. Avengers 3, Age of Ultron 2, and Winter Soldier as 1. Okay. I defy anyone to match that. For the <laughs> we match on a couple things. Okay. And we're close on some others. And then some things were way off. All right. My number 12 is Incredible Hulk. Number 11 is Thor. Number 10 is Iron Man 2. Number 9 is Thor 2. Number 8 is Iron Man 3. Number 7 is Avengers 2. Number 6 is Ant-Man. Number five is the first Cap. Number four is the first Iron Man. Guardians is number three for me. That's the big, big uh, difference between us. Mm. Uh, Winter Soldier is two, and the first Avengers is still number one. Yeah, all right. There's a little bit of overlap between my list and the the two of yours. uh, Not all that much, honestly, because, well, well, you'll see. Okay, so uh, number 12, we're unanimous in ranking The Incredible Hulk last. Uh, it's the only one of these movies that I didn't even bother to see in the theater. No, me too. Having seen it on FX since then, I, I don't really regret that decision. Uh, number 11 for me is Iron Man 3. Number 10 for me is Iron Man 2. I actually did like that one better than I liked Iron Man 3. I go back and forth with those two sometimes. Um, let's see. Uh, Ant-Man, I rank just above Iron Man 2 then. Uh, number eight would have been the, the Captain America, the first Avenger, the first Captain America movie. Uh, right above that at number seven is Iron Man, the first one. Uh, then at number six, Captain America, the Winter Soldier. Uh, number five, we have Thor, the Dark World. Thor continues to be my favorite, uh, non-team, uh, Marvel franchise. Um, number four, Guardians of the Galaxy. 
pretty far up there. Uh, number three, we have Avengers 2, Age of Ultron. Number two, the original Thor movie. Love it. And uh, the number one is uh, sitting squarely on the top. Uh, on my list, as on yours, Shane, is still the first mm-hmm. Avengers movie. Still the gold standard for superhero filmmaking as I far agree as with I'm that concerned. Mm-hmm. All right. So, and it's good that we like Guardians so much. Yeah, it really was a fun movie. It, it was. It, it was a fun movie. Yeah, it's the second one could it can easily top it. Oh, I think it could, and it could easily be worse. Mm. <laughs> we'll we'll see. Yeah, there's you know, either get better, or you get worse. You yeah. never stay the same. I think that one's. I think that one has the chance to be more unpredictable than most others, depending on where they go with it. Uh, but I'm I'm certainly along for the ride. I got the whole galaxy to play in. So. Yeah. Yeah. It, I have a question for you quick before we wrap up because sure. I know we're wrapping up and I got to get feet to bed. But um, so we're just circling back a little bit to if Edgar Wright would have had his vision, uh, that essentially would have been a standalone, uh, not really connected. Guardians of the Galaxy, you could argue, is essentially the same thing. Do you think that it works for Guardians of the Galaxy, but it would have not have worked for Ant Man if that would have been the case? Well, it's easier for Guardians of the Galaxy to get away with it because it's out in outer space. True. So it, it, it can just completely ignore whatever's happening in the other movies because it's not on the same planet. However, there was plenty of stuff in there that does tie it to the regular Marvel Cinematic Universe, even, even just given the Infinity Stone that they're chasing after. Mm-hmm. I mean, that alone is enough to wrap it into the Marvel Universe like crazy. That's essentially was my thought is it gave you enough to let you know this is connected – but it was – it did essentially feel more or less standalone but because it's out in space. And I think that's what, what worked as opposed to Ant-Man. How can it essentially be the same character in the same universe but never do anything with anything else in the universe yeah, I don't, that it's so close to? I don't think it would have made much sense to make Ant-Man a totally standalone movie and not be intertwined at all or even mention – the rest of the Marvel Cinematic now, Universe. Now, for his nearly his entire existence as a comic book character, Ant-Man has worked best, it seems, as a supporting character, sure. a team player. So yeah. have, trying to have him stand alone without a, a universe to prop him up, doesn't. I don't yeah. think that would have worked all that well at all. To, well, although now that you mentioned the Infinity Stones, I'm kind of surprised we didn't have a mention of one of them in this movie. Well, and I, th- I think that's okay because you really didn't have one in Cap 2. Well, that's true. Um, there are things out there where it doesn't come into play, but not much. Um, but I think it was okay to take a kind of a, a deep breath and a, and a sigh before you get into the next group of movies that's going to propel that to the end result of the next two Avengers movies. Well, and that's something I did like is we just got done with Age of, of Ultron, and that felt so global in this earth-shattering threat. And then this one is a lot smaller, kind yeah, of but more yeah. down to earth. So it was, and, it, it was nice that, that the last two in face – Two of the Marvel Universe is essentially on opposite ends to kind of build you up and then at the end kind of just like bring you down before the next big thing, the next civil war. And, and yet civil. still enough to mention things like – I forget if they said if it was Cap dropping cities all over the place or something, making reference to Avengers yeah, 2. Michael but Douglas still, did say that, yeah. Um, yeah. It, it was still just, an, just enough to be included in the universe but yet be its own little standalone story inside – San Francisco area. I kind of have this feeling that even though The Incredible Hulk, now I'm glad that Civil War is going to bring back a couple of the characters, uh, Thunderbolt, Ross, and I think there's another one that's coming back. But um, I kind of have this feeling that 
Ant-Man, the original way, would have felt more like the Incredible Hulk, where they were just kind of, at that time, building. They only had Iron Man before, and then they had this. So they, they had like little subtle things where you could see Stark and S.H.I.E.L.D. and that type of stuff. But for the most part, it, that to me kind of feels like its own thing, especially when they recasted uh, Banner. Yeah. And- uh, for the good, but because um, I think that if Hulk would have come out you know, two years later, it would have felt – it might have – done better than where we all listed because it would have felt more involved with everything. Sure. Um, and, and I like Ed Norton in a lot of things. And I even didn't mind him as Banner in the Hulk. It just didn't work as well as when Mark Ruffalo finally came in the Avengers. That was just so, so much more of a, of a natural fit, it seemed, in his mannerisms and how he approached the Banner character and his interactions with the way they wrote him for S.H.I.E.L.D. and stuff. I just think it worked so much better than what they were driving towards in Incredible Hulk. But I, I, but like you said, Matt, I don't give it anything less than, than an A. It's just the lowest A out of that grouping of them because I did enjoy it well enough that I bought it when it was on sale sometime and I've watched it a few times. It's just not quite in the same vein as all these other ones. True enough. And the CGI was also pretty poor. Yeah. Yeah. All right. That about do it? All right, Time this to roll the end credits here. This episode was brought to you by Discount Comic Book Service. Visit their website for all your pre-ordering needs. That's Discount Comic Book Service, DCBService.com. Good heavens, I almost screwed it up. Um, visit us at ComicGeekSpeak.com to send us an email. The address is ComicGeekSpeak at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, the number is 267-702-6642. Thanks to Drunk Cap for using that. <laughs> Stop by The Comic Forums and let us know what you thought of Ant-Man and how you rank all these movies. I know that my list is crazier than most people's. Uh, follow us on Twitter. Like us on Facebook. Thank you to everyone who contributes to the show. We appreciate it and couldn't do it without you. Send in some Muddle the Murds. I know I've gotten sent some myself that will feature in some upcoming episodes. And as always, we are uniting the world's mightiest heroes, one listener at a time.